You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. Prophet Isaiah writes the following. Bell bows down, Nebo stoops low. Their idols are borne by beasts of burden. The images that are carried about are burdensome, a burden for the weary. They stoop and bow down together, unable to rescue the burden. They themselves go off into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all you who remain of the house of Israel, you whom I have upheld since you were conceived and have carried since your birth. Even to your old age and gray hairs, I am he. I am he who will sustain you. I have made you, and I will carry you. I will sustain you, and I will rescue you. To whom will you compare me, or count me equal? To whom will you liken me, that we may be compared? Some pour out gold from their bags, and weigh out silver on the scales. They hire a goldsmith to make it into a god and they bow down and worship it. They lift it up to their shoulders and carry it. They set it up in its place, and there it stands. From that spot, it cannot move. Though one cries out to it, it does not answer. It cannot save him from his troubles. Remember this. Fix it in your mind. Take it to heart, you rebels. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. From the east I summon a bird of prey, from a far-off land a man to fulfill my purpose. What I have said, that I will bring about. What I have planned, that I will do. Listen to me, you stubborn-hearted, you who are far from righteousness. I am bringing my righteousness near. It is not far away, and my salvation will not be delayed. I will grant salvation to Zion, my splendor to Israel. These are the words of the Lord. Many years ago, a dear pastor friend of mine who has since gone home to be with the Lord uh, introduced me to the phrase of low church. Uh, and he did this one Sunday morning when actually he was here visiting. Uh, and it was a Sunday after Thanksgiving. And he said, well, you know, the Sunday after Thanksgiving, the Sunday after Christmas is Low Church Sunday. Uh, and what he went by that was that typically it tends to be lower in attendance. Uh, and also the congregation is in a somewhat more subdued move. So that presented me with a little bit of a quandary this week. As soon as Thanksgiving service was over, my immediate thoughts were, what will I speak on next Sunday? It's the Sunday after Thanksgiving. This year we have another extra week in there before we begin Advent, which begins next Sunday. So the question is, what, what do the people that God's entrusted me with, what do we need to hear on Low Church Sunday? And then it hit me, exactly what we always need to hear. And that is somehow to be confronted with who God is and what he has done. Uh, and so I want you to look with me at Isaiah chapter 46, because in this particular chapter, we have laid out for us the sovereignty of God. 
a doctrine that is rich in significance and of practical significance, as I hope to prove uh, to all of us, irregardless of what day it is. Uh, A.W. Pink was a pastor and uh, Christian writer, author in the 20th century. And in one of his books, he defines the sovereignty of God in this way. God's sovereignty refers to the supremacy of God, the kingship of God, the godhood of God. It simply declares that God is God. Uh, let me just share that with you again, because I, if we're going to talk about God's sovereignty, just sort of wrap your minds around this very simple definition that A.W. Pink gives. God's sovereignty is the supremacy of God, the kingship of God, the godhood of God. It is to declare that God is God. And nowhere does that come across more clearly than in Isaiah chapter 46. You notice the passage ironically begins with a mention of two Babylonian gods. So in verse 1 it says, Bel bows down, Nebo stoops low. So these are not references to people, but Babylonian deities. And surprisingly, this particular section of scripture that's going to focus on the sovereignty of God begins by reminding us this is a very relevant teaching. That Isaiah's audience needed to understand what it means to declare that God is God. And I hope to show that we also stand in the same place, that we need to be reminded continually that God is God. Now, if you're not aware of it, the historical setting of the book of Isaiah, and in particular, these chapters lend significant insight into how they needed to hear this message. So chapters 40 through 55 of Isaiah cover a time period where the people of Israel are in exile. They are in Babylon because of their disobedience to God. They have been separated amongst the families. Uh, the Hebrew language almost falls into extinction during this time. And they will spend 70 years in Babylonian captivity. That is where they are as these words are delivered to them. It also appears in a section of Isaiah where in Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 49, you have the servant songs, two of four different prophetic pictures of Jesus Christ, the one who is to come, the ultimate deliverer. So in between that offsetting of, of this promised servant to come, you have this reminder of the sovereignty of God. So the people of Israel, the southern kingdom, is in exile. The northern kingdom will eventually find themselves removed by the Assyrians. Southern kingdom will not get that same message and take it to heart. They will go on another roughly two centuries and then they will be carted off into exile. You could argue at this point that from an earthly perspective, it would look like the faith of the Israelites was useless. That here they are, God's people, and they're in captivity. They have no temple, no significant way to corporately worship. Uh, they're in a foreign land. Many times their names have been stripped from them to give them new identities. And there they stand. From that perspective, I think you could argue from all appearances, it would look as if God is not sovereign, but powerless. That something has happened and gone wrong with his plan. And yet, as bad as things look, 
the reality of God's sovereignty makes the very strange announcement here to Israel and to the Babylonians. And that is, although the Babylonians hold them in captivity, God's word is, you yourselves are going to need a deliverer very soon because I am going to judge you. And as you think about that, what a relevant message to us today. As you look at our world, we realize Christianity is not only under attack in many different areas. Uh, some of you may have read just the recent event that happened this past week with a Christian missionary who was killed as he sought to bring the message to a very uh, violent tribe uh, and the hopes of ever finding or recovering his body are seen as very slim. Uh, but the reality is we live in a world where the Christian faith is being attacked, is being questioned, is being marginalized, and is being rejected by many. How we need to be reminded through the eyes of Isaiah as he would look out at the Babylonian captivity and kingdom, that God is still sovereign, that God is still God. Let me read this quote and tell me if this does not sound applicable to the 21st century. While the turbulent state of the world deprives us of judgment, God, by the pure light of his own righteousness and wisdom, regulates these very commotions in the most exact order and directs them to their proper end. It may surprise you that that was said by John Calvin in the 16th century. How more appropriate is that to look at our world today and say all of these commotions, all these things that are happening are being orchestrated and used by God, directed to its proper end. One of the verses that many of us cling to is Romans 8, 28, which speaks of the fact for all things work together to good to them who love God and are called by God according to his purposes. What does that verse speak of? The sovereignty of God. We all at different points in our life experience personal losses, experience difficult trials, circumstances that we have not been able to foresee, that at times are outside of our immediate control. Those are reminders to us as God's children that he is sovereign. And if the people of Israel could say that during the Babylonian captivity, how much greater should we be able to say that this side of the cross. So the doctrine of the sovereignty of God is a very relevant teaching. But as we listen to the message that God gives Isaiah, we see that it's not just a relevant teaching or doctrine. It is a tremendously comforting doctrine. Look closely at verses 3 through 7 of Isaiah 46. And you have a comparison here, a comparison between the God of Israel and the gods of the Babylonians, and in particular Nebo and Bel, or Marduk. So in this comparison, it should be striking as you look at how it begins in verse 3, simply listen to me. And this message is addressed to the house of Judah, the southern kingdom, but it's also extended to all of God's people, those whom he has chosen and elected, where it speaks of the house of Israel as well. The particular word listen there is a very strong verb. Uh, it means to give your undivided attention to this. 
you can imagine how easy it is in life's circumstances and situations to become distracted. As you walk around the streets of Hanover, Lebanon, you see many people are always plugged in listening to something. Uh, I saw where some advertisers are promoting some of the earless um, buds that you can put in your ears. It's not only great to listen to things, but also they can send a clear message to other people. You just don't want to be bothered. Uh, and so some have talked about how they're using them just for that reason. They're not really listening to anything. It's just kind of a message. Don't talk to me. I don't want to be interrupted. I just want to be left alone. We have a hard time listening to the right voices today. And so you notice that God says to Isaiah, tell the people to listen to this, to give their undivided attention, to put aside the circumstances that clearly would distract you and lead you to think that God is no longer sovereign or in control. But the comparison is striking in that you look at verse 3, and it says, Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all you who remain of the house of Israel, you whom I have upheld since you were conceived and have carried since your birth, even to your old age and gray hairs, I am he. I am he who will sustain you. I have made you, and I will carry you. I will sustain you, and I will rescue you. Notice the emphasis there on what God does for his people. You have in verse 3, I will uphold you, I have carried you. I've, I've literally supported you, I have held you, I have uh, gone deep with you. I've gone through all of the experiences that you have gone through as my people. I have been there with you. Think of later or earlier in the book of Isaiah when he says, when you go through the waters, I'll be with you. When you go through the fire, you will not be burned. And you want, to, you want to keep in mind the activity of God here on behalf of his people. Go on to verse 4 and you see the, the emphatic first person pronoun. Uh, I have upheld you. Uh, I am he. I sustain you. I have made you. I carry you. I sustain you again. I will rescue you. And that leads us to verse 5, the rhetorical question, who, who, who compares with me? Who, who is my equal? And we know the effectiveness of a rhetorical question is the answer is obvious. It, it doesn't need to be stated. You can imagine Isaiah's audience hearing this and the thought that should come to them is, of course, no one is equal to you. And yet the sad reality is it would take the Babylonian captivity to, to root out of God's people, their, their attraction to idol worship. And perhaps at this point, they were finally coming to the reality that there is no God but the God of Israel. That, that all of these other gods that are around us are powerless, but God is powerful. But I said there's a comparison. So that tells us what the God of Israel is like, proven through the pages of Scripture. But now contrast that with idols. Contrast that with Nebo. Contrast that with Bel. And so you see in verses 6 and 7 a description of the nature of idols. Verse 6 says, Some pour out gold from their bags and weigh out silver on the scales. They hire a goldsmith to make it into a god, and they bow down and worship it. 
the picture there is, is how is an idol made? Well, someone has to take some of their money. And whether it be gold or silver, they, they hire someone to, to craft that idol. So in other words, here you have idols are gods made in our image. They, they reflect what we want a certain deity or being to look like or to be represented by. But then it goes on well in verse 7. They lift it up to their shoulders and carry it. They set it up in its place, and there it stands. From that spot it cannot move. Though one cries out to it, it does not answer. It cannot save him from his troubles. What, what sarcasm is used here as Isaiah presents, well, let's talk about this use of idols. You, you make them, you hire someone to make them, and then you have to place them in a spot, and they can't move from that spot. Neither can they respond, react to your cries. Instead of the God of Israel who carries his children, these idols you must pick up on your shoulders and move about. And in fact, as he'll show, is the absurdity of all this is when the Babylonians fall, surprisingly, to the Medes and the Persians, they will come in and cart these gods away for the gold and the silver that is in them. They will load them, as Isaiah says, they will load them on beasts of burdens. And in fact, these very gods that you thought could handle your distresses will become a burden to the animals that have to carry them out of the land to be melted down. What, what an absolute contrast between the God who created all things and these imposter gods that so permeate the area of ancient Israel. We don't want to be amiss here and kind of assume, well, that's not a problem today. I don't know. Just look around at what happens sometimes on Black Friday. What will consume people between now and Christmas? A, a form of materialism, you could argue, an idol that seems to grip so many that our gods today are much more maybe polished and refined, but not really different at all in nature or comparison to the true God. It's the very same message that Paul would take with him into Athens. Look with me for a moment at Acts chapter 17. And in Acts chapter 17, you have the Apostle Paul, who I, I just love this account in Acts 17 because he's he sent to Athens to to remain quiet, uh, just to, to place them there until things calm down and then go on to a, a real place to minister. Uh, but you all know Paul, he can't do that. And so he's, he's wandering around this city that is filled with idols. Uh, historians, Jewish historians, Roman historians agree that, that there were more idols in Athens than there were people. That there was an idol for everything. But you get to Acts chapter 17, and in verses 29 through 32, Paul capitalizes on the fact that there are people who are just looking and desperate for finding God. In fact, they are so superstitious, they, they even have an, an altar 
an idol to the unknown God in case they've missed one somewhere. But listen to what he says to them in verse 29 and following. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. Now, not only were they reacting to the reality and message of who Jesus Christ is, but you can't preach who Christ is without also acknowledging the sovereignty of God. Which brings us back to the passage in Isaiah 46, and that not only is the sovereignty of God a relevant teaching, not only is it of tremendous comfort to those of us who know God through Christ, but it's also a very polarizing teaching. It, it is life-changing in two different directions, one positive and one negatively. Well, let's look at the, the positive part of this and how does this doctrine change and transform us? Well, return to Isaiah 46. And you see in verses 8 and 9, you have all of this discussion building to the point of this argument, the point of this discussion. There is only one God, the true God of Israel. But in verses 8 and 9, we see that if you properly acknowledge God, it means that you surrender in worship and service to him. Verses 8 and 9 both begin with the word remember. Remember this fix or keep it in your mind verse 9 remember the former things of old now the hebrew word for remember there means not just a, a physical act but a mental act as well in other words something that you do internally but then reflects itself outwardly externally and so the challenge is for god's people go back as far as you can in your history and consider and look at how God's sovereignty has been demonstrated. So for this to be a life-changing doctrine for us, to not just go through the scriptures, which is very important, to read these examples that are written for our encouragement and instruction, but maybe take some time to review your own life and say, how have you seen God's sovereign hand in your life? His protection over you, his care for you, uh, his ability to use physical difficulties, spiritual trials in a way to bring you closer to him, to build certain spiritual characteristics in your life that are directly the result of God being able to take something at times, not just painful, but evil, and to use it for his greater purposes. Here's a reason he says to the people of Israel twice, remember, remember this. Take stock of it mentally, but live differently because of that. Notice verses 10 through 13. And once again, consider these words from the perspective that you are an Israelite and you are in captivity. 
And from all relevant purposes, it appears that Babylon is powerful. Doesn't look like they're waning in power. Doesn't look like they're on the heels of, of falling apart and that somehow you're going to be able to just walk right out of that land without any problem. But look closely at verses 10 through 13, that God's purposes and plans will never be frustrated. It says, I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. From the east, I summon a bird of prey. From a far off land, a man to fulfill my purposes. What I have said, that I will bring about. What I have planned, that I will do. Now, you may wonder, what is this reference to about God's plan and the mention of a bird of prey? Well, you'd need to read Isaiah 44 and 45 to get the full picture, but this is a reference to Cyrus the Great, where, where God says, I'm going to bring you out of captivity, and the way I will do that is, is I'm going to appoint someone named Cyrus. Cyrus the Great, a, a powerful king, probably even many would argue greater than Alexander the Great, that he would come and he is going to be used by me to bring deliverance. Now, there may be a couple reasons why it's referenced as bird of prey. Uh, one is we know that the Babylonians and some of their pagan practices thought that by listening to the sound and chatter of birds, that the gods might speak to them about the future. The second is that when Cyrus the Great would defeat Babylon, he would do so surprisingly fast, unexpectedly, and he would come from the east. In other words, what you have happening here that, that should just kind of blow our minds is that centuries before a guy named Cyrus is even born, God is declaring that this individual will come. He will be named Cyrus. And he will be the one I will use to deliver you out of captivity. And we all know the story, and it goes and unfolds exactly that way. Cyrus is the one who issues the edict, allowing them to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. What a powerful reminder of the transforming effect that the sovereignty of God has, or should have, in the lives of his children. That's the positive side. The, the negative side of God's sovereignty is that those who refuse to acknowledge it, who refuse to surrender to it, will be crushed and judged underneath the weight of it. And so you see this reference in both verse 8 as well as verse 12, that this message is intended for Israel, but notice as well for any who are resistant, because it says in verse 8, Remember this, fix it in mind, take it to heart, you rebels. Now, the word rebel there is literally you, you transgressors. You who have been guilty of a breach in your relationship with me. So you can't proclaim the sovereignty of God without also recognizing those who resist it, who transgress against a God who is over all, will suffer 
the consequences of that. And so in many ways, it is life-changing negatively, not only impacting how you see the world now, but there will be eternal consequences to rejecting the sovereignty of God. In verse 8, they're called rebels. Notice in verse 12, listen to me, you stubborn-hearted, you who are far from justice. Now, possibly stubborn-hearted at times can refer to the people of Israel, but expanding that out to any who reject Christ, who reject God's sovereignty, that one can be stubborn out of pride and arrogance. One can be stubborn also in an unwillingness to think that the God of Israel is able to do this. In other words, a lack of faith. So the doctrine of God's sovereignty should mean everything to us. So on a Sunday that's after Thanksgiving and yet not Advent, on a Sunday that is in many ways called Low Church Sunday, here you have a passage that never mentions the word Thanksgiving, never mentions the word Advent, but in reality has everything to do with celebrating both. Because you can't celebrate being thankful to God. You can't anticipate and look forward to his second coming and look back to his first without acknowledging the sovereignty of God, that God is God. Let's pray. King of heaven, may you drive this message into us this week as we look at our world, as we experience the realities of living life in a sinful world, that we continually keep before us the sovereignty of God, that we have one who carries us, sustains us, and strengthens us. In Jesus' name, amen.